or your grandkids. And I'm like, because I like the horse. Look at the horse. <laughs> the horse is fine. <laughs> Okay, right. these are yours if you guys. Dad's even cracking. Passing. Woohoo! Wow. Cheers. Hello, I am Aaron Pekinas and. I'm Morgan Higgins. That's you. Yep, yeah, yeah. And. <laughs> and. And guys, the also, car is full. The car is full. We had three pops being cracked. Actually, they're waters. Uh, yeah. Because who do we have in the back? You first. Um, I am John Giddings, Aaron Pekinas' dad. And you are? Dave Light. Morgan's dad. Man! He won't have a seltzer water, though. He brought us coffee. Oh, nice. Okay. But Dad cracked a cracked a beverage with us. I don't yep. feel like anybody else has cracked a water with us. I think that's yeah, the first it. time somebody else has cracked with us. Yeah, I feel like it's at least been a very long time. Yeah. And this is not even an almost flavored water. No, this one has no, no this flavor. this is boring. We just yeah. like the... Blue can. Blah. Yep. Um, we are mixing it up. So we're, we finally managed to pull ourselves together and have a guest on. Well, and this I is, think this, we were trying to do this last Father's Day. We were, yeah. Now we're just early for this Father's Day. Well, this is what wait, I think wait, is wait, funny, because yeah. Mother's Day is like two Sundays from now. So basically, oh, I right. think what we're doing, this is what, this you just turn it into a plan. Like, oh yeah, no, okay. what we're doing this year is we're flip-flopping. So we're having the dads Ooh, for Mother's Day, perfect. we'll have the moms for Father's Day. Okay, that's perfect. Yeah, because <laughs> I, I was thinking, because we skipped last year, we forgot Mother's I think we did. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Hard. It's hard to pull it together. But, like, we yeah, can't hard. pull it together to have a guest on pretty much ever. No. Unless well, they're walking by while we're also <laughs> having a conversation and they have free time. <laughs> that is super true. And la- the last two times we've tried to record, though, also, we couldn't even record because then well, we were just talking. Because we also had 45 minutes and 86 things to catch up on yes. and sort out. So yes, it was certainly. not good. No. Yeah, but today we have the dads on, which is funny because they both look quiet. I know. I did because I, I have a feeling it might be hard to get them going because, like, sometimes it is hard to get my dad going in these kind of settings. Mm-hmm. But once, once they get going, I think it'll be. I know. I thought they haven't given us a fraction of a second. To you got it, right? You got to jump in. You got to jump in. I am. I'm getting ready with a question, but I have to say, this morning I was like, some good ones. these two guys are so wild and varied <laughs> with the most random, crazy stories, the both of them. That yep, anytime yep. you're having a conversation with either one of these guys, you could be like, well, I was having, I don't know, a seizure and a banana flew out my ear. And they'd be like, oh, hey, one time I knew a guy. I feel like there's never a topic that does not have an easy jump to some weird story. It is. That is very true. No, I was just talking to somebody, hopefully it wasn't on here, about uh, how... Oh, yeah, no, it wasn't. Uh, Because we were talking about kids playing sports in secular settings. Christian kids playing sports in secular settings. And, um, And I was saying that the sports thing, that was the first time that I noticed, wait a second, my kids can't ask me what certain drugs are like like what the experience of being on those drugs is like and I was like how do you parent if you can't tell them how it was yourself and I'm like I guess I just say what my grandfather says (laughs) my dad says your grandfather says LSD is not very fun and (laughs) don't pick that one yeah but that it is kind of a weird that's incorrect information no that's right you do you do (laughs) like that if you're in a safe feeling place right What's the one you didn't like? I probably shouldn't put this on. I think, <laughs> I think, I think that the statute of limitations has <clears throat> gone oh, yes, away, that, hasn't it? Yeah. Bang for the buck. That's the one. 
But what's isn't there oh, one yeah. that you really didn't like? Um, peyote. Okay. <laughs> I remember there was one that scared him. He was like, I don't like that. That's, That's not a fun time. Well, yeah. cocaine too. That yeah. Yeah. As someone who, and don't think of me as goody two shoes, but I just never did drugs yep, at yep. all. And so I have no experience. Though I do have a great story. Well, okay. Um, and also, you have experience you helping people who yes. have taken too many drugs. Yeah. So yes. I, I was a fireman for 40 years. And I remember taking an elderly man. He was in his mid to late 70s. Um, and it was about the time that uh, marijuana was becoming uh, legal. Ava- legal, yes. And so. As I'm asking him questions, and that he he had drank some marijuana infused Everclear, and uh, now I have I have tasted Everclear before, but uh, just to, you know to know that it's just alcohol, I uh, mean straight alcohol. Right. But uh, and so as we're we're on our way to the hospital, because he's a little freaking out, and I said, so marijuana infused Everclear, what's that like? And he goes. Oh, it's totally like a bad acid trip. And I said, and you know what that's like, don't you? And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah. All right. that, so, yeah there's that's, my, my acid story. That's amazing. <laughs> it is amazing. Okay, well, that probably lines us up for our first go-round. Because you guys are both in your 70s now. I mean, you now because you just turned 70. Yeah. Just too long ago. And you're a few years in to your 70s, right? Be 77 in August. Good work. (laughs) That's That's a decent lifetime. So, (laughs) if you... (laughs) He just pretended to be dead. And as I would say, he was going to die of something. (laughs) Um, uh, So, if you had to give us your life story... In three minutes or less. Oh, that's tough. That is hard. Yeah. I know. That's good. I mean, because that's, it's almost unkind. I get it. I'm only 46 and I feel like that's a hard sell. I feel like 70s makes that harder. But what would you say about growing up and getting to where you are now? You could take five minutes. I don't know. We, we, don't, we don't have a timer. <coughs> Ready to go. You first. All right. Um, so I grew up in like white picket fence land. My mom and dad, uh, it, was, it was literally a house with a white picket fence, and they were both great parents. Uh, it wasn't a Christian home uh, overtly by any means, though it wasn't. Uh, it, was, it was, they were just very nice. I mean, they were very moral people. They were very nice people. Uh, they, I don't remember exactly if they went to church every week, but I went to Sunday school for early on. Right down at the bottom of our hill was the old grade school. Um, but was also uh, a, ch- a little small Baptist church plant uh, when I was little. And so I started going there to Sunday school and church forever. I was actually the church organist uh, Ooh, for nice. a short period of time. Uh, Isn't that funny? Yeah. Cool. Also for, because he can only currently play one song and well, it's like it, a boogie-woogie tune. Yeah, I mean, and it's, I, I could actually read the hymnal music and play with both hands on a church organ. Whoa. And I cannot read any music now. It's as though I have had a stroke and I can't. <laughs> you lost that. Yeah, part, I have no ability right? to look at music. And I've tried how to look at How old were you? I was probably 11 or 12. Or Isn't that crazy? Yeah, so I had, cool. I had taken piano lessons for a number of years. Uh, but that, Kelly yeah. wanted us to get a pipe organ in our house for a while. Uh, and I was yeah. like, I don't think this can happen. It takes a bigger house. Yes, so you so. offered me up the baby grand that's sitting <laughs> in the foyer. And I was like, I can't imagine what life would be like with those 
I don't know. Also, that square piano feet. sounds no. terrible. Right? But I do it's think if we out. can't get rid of that baby grand, it <laughs> needs to go to the farm and somebody needs to play it while it is actually burned. On There's fire. a fire burning. Ooh, yeah. On Jerry top Lee of Lewis. That would yeah. be fun. Yeah. Hallie would think that was fun. Yeah. She'd sign up for that. Um, so, anyway, yeah. so grew up, I don't remember a time that I didn't believe in Jesus. Uh, I got baptized when I was 11 or 12. Um, and, uh, but never it was never a very it wasn't a profound faith at all and by the time I was uh, I was in, in let's see I was less than 16 years old when Lori and I started to date uh, and we got married four years later um, but there was you know I was definitely living paganly um, but still in my mind I believe in Jesus I think I'm a Christian um, and that went on uh, oh probably through I guess probably for the next 20 years, I was 20, 40, yeah, probably for the next 20 years, um, was was going to church regularly, but, uh, you know, it was very nominal faith. And I had a very good friend who uh, was not a Christian at the time, though he was really close and got saved shortly after I knew him, um, who we were having a conversation one time about the resurrection. And it became clear to me that he actually knew more about the resurrection than I did, mm -hmm. uh, theologically, mm -hmm. and which I made me feel very bad. I mean, and he even made <laughs> the comment at one point, he goes, you been a Christian all your life, it seems like you should know more about this. this is, unless you know, if you're not aware, this is actually a really big deal, the resurrection. Yeah. Hey, by the way. Yeah. So, uh, I, I had, uh, so I thought, well, yes, I should. And so, somehow, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology book had just come out, and that became, somebody made the comment about, well, hey, there's, you know, maybe read Systematic Theology. And so I bought the book and just read it from cover to cover very, very slowly. It took me probably a year and a half, and I underlined a ton, and I just, so that was kind of my introduction into you know, theology, if you will. And then I became hooked. I mean, so... I love that. It's like you're building a skeleton inside of a fully grown person that just doesn't have the skeleton. Like, uh -huh. like you're like, oh, wait, I was missing this whole yep. structure. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. And, and I started <laughs> off because I was good friends, my friend that did get saved. He was very much into apologetics. So I kind of started <clears throat> off being more enthused by apologetics. And then it shifted into just more uh, raw theology. I, I just became totally immersed in theology uh, and Reformation theology primarily, um, or at least reform type. I mean, I'm still a Baptist, and uh, though I obviously you can't read Reformation stuff without reading lots of non-Baptist guys. Uh, but, and that would, what that did then is make me look at how I was living my life and recognize those areas where I was not living Christianly. And, you know, so I became much more uh, inclined toward living Christianly. Uh, if I was going to be a Christian, it seemed like I should live like one. Uh, and as I learned more and more about what it looks like to live like a Christian, it's like, oh, well, I'm not doing that. Maybe I should start doing that. And uh, so that, that was probably in my well, the early 90s. Um, so at that point, I'm late 30s, early 40s, getting on towards 40, um, and, which really did have just a very, very profound effect on me. We were going to a Baptist church that was kind of your classic old school, the, you know, the pastor that we had had for 20 years, great guy, lots of fun, you know, uh, three points and a joke, you know, was the sermon. So they were, they were not profoundly theological, but... But they, they were, were biblical. They were biblical. I mean, they yeah. were yeah. biblical. Yeah, no, yeah. they were totally biblical. Um, and he left uh, after about a 20-year pastorate. I ended up, or the, the pastor that came was also a Baptist pastor, not, you know, brutally 
theological, but biblical also. Uh, the church started to grow a little bit with, uh, with him, but he was only there for about three years. And then we had a series of really bad pastors. Uh, they, and they got <laughs> increasingly bad. Progressively worse. <laughs> yeah, they just got progressively worse, uh, which then, um, and this Aaron and Dean had just gotten married. They were living in Lake Stevens. Uh, there was a church plant that was meeting in a grade school. Uh, Aaron and Dean started going there and one thing led to another. They started meeting in our church. It became apparent that maybe we should just merge congregations because we were dying. I mean, we were down to probably 75 people. They were maybe 75 people, if that. Mm -hmm. Maybe not it, that, yeah. the, I would say both of those numbers were way smaller. Too high, okay. Yeah. Yeah. It, regardless, they were, they were smallish <laughs> numbers, but about the same. And so we merged congregations. Uh, they were Southern Baptists. We were American Baptists, though, you know, I guess if you wanted to say it, we were, we were as conservative of American Baptists as you might get, mm -hmm. uh, which isn't very conservative generally. Right. You mm -hmm. believed in Jesus. Yes. Do you actually preach the gospel and the resurrection? Like, is that a thing that, that you is, that is or a, not? That yeah. is an actual thing. So, and so then I, uh, as we merged the congregations, I became one of the, uh, the initial elders and was there for about 10 years or so. <clears throat> but it was still, I, I was, I always describe myself as like the square peg and a bunch of round holes that I never quite fit in with the other elders. I was far more reformed than they were. And, uh, and that was always a little bit of a bone of contention, though it was fine. I mean, we got along fine, but you know, we, we argued theologically some, and it, it became increasingly difficult to, to be there, uh, especially with worship. The worship style was getting more, I don't know, how would you call it, Aaron? Um, it's really hard to use yeah. words for some of those things. Right? right. I'm like, I feel like a picture helps yeah. more well, than yeah. you're like. Occasionally, yeah. Aaron and I would roll our eyes at each other <laughs> during worship service. Let's put it that way. But we tried really hard not to. We right. knew that was not godly behavior, yeah, and so we did not pursue We both that had conversations about, you know, <laughs> hey, our job is to worship while we're here. But yep. uh, yeah, 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 so true. Yeah, we got to the we got to the point. Aaron and I primarily got to the point where we were really ready to go. Uh, Lori and Dean. Uh, were less so, uh, and a lot of it was we had gone to church by then uh, for 30 years. Yeah. yeah, no, and they have better control of eye rolling tendencies, I think. Yeah, and and we, there were uh, oh, yeah, mom and your mom and oh, yeah, oh yeah, sure. yeah, <laughs> yes. and there were just and, and I felt this too. Hey, there were people that I loved at that church because we'd worshipped with them forever, and they were just mm -hmm. stellar folk. Um, but also, we recognized that gosh, there'd be better places for us to go and we started to get involved with the school which then gets us involved with people at Trinity and uh, I realized right off the bat it's like well hey these are actually my people I mean this is this is where I won't feel like a square peg and a bunch of round holes I will slip right into that uh, and so we had talked with Dean and Aaron about leaving I mean we were Aaron and I were ready a year before they they were uh, and I finally said one day I said here to all of us we were together doing something and I said all right <laughs> let's go out to dinner and let's talk about this I mean we need to actually talk about what are we going to do and so we actually went out to dinner at a little restaurant and before Aaron and I had anything to say I mean I'm thinking we're going to have to convince them that it's, <laughs> it's time to make a move and they both were like yeah we're ready to go <laughs> All right, let's eat. Yeah, let's eat. Yeah, and it really was like that. So uh, at that point, we we made the the transition pretty quickly. Uh, Dean and Aaron were still working in kids' church and still had a, a month or two be kind of behind us until that was over. But uh, 
and that was super because I, you know, I was around them. So I had learned a lot about theology. I mean, I had really spent a lot of time digging into it and I'm not a, I'm not smart, uh, initially but i can i can persevere if i keep, that's not true if I keep, no i'm not i mean i don't learn things easily so you know if i but if i read about propitiation you know maybe 20 times i'll finally start getting on to what that actually means and uh so you know not patting myself on the back at all but the the level of theological training at where we were was relatively low so i always felt like you know, I was kind of the brightest theological light in the room. One of the things I loved about coming to, to TEC was all of a sudden I realized, man, this is super because I am so not the brightest light in the room. I mean, like, this is awesome. Yeah. Totally. I love that feeling when you're like, oh, there's people in here I can get stuff out of. Yeah. Right? yeah. Oh, so, here, let me squeeze you. Yeah, so that was that was superb. I mean, that was really wonderful. And, and still is. I mean, I still recognize that, hey, I'm around a bunch of guys that know way more about the Bible than I do, and I benefit from that all the time. And so that's, maybe there's the quick story. Of that is that's not quick at good. all. Oh, yeah, yeah no, that wasn't. Well, and I want to tell, <laughs> I didn't expect this, did I tell the story about how I first heard about your dad? Have I told that on the podcast? No. Okay, so I go to I needed a new massage person so I'd like oh, put on funny. Facebook or something somebody's like oh you gotta go do you think she would care if I said her name I don't think so oh, so Vana <laughs> also she's a great awesome. masseuse she is yeah. she's amazing I keep thinking I wish I could go see Vana um, and she comes to our church so if you ever see I know I've been her, seeing like, her so is around. she coming she is coming on the regular okay but I know because I keep seeing her and I'm like oh. responsibilities in Eastern Washington yeah because she's so like she leave out early. really fast yeah, yeah. but anyway. Uh, anyway hi Vana if you're listening but she so I go to this new massage person it's like at the time where my health has just tanked and I'm like dead so I go in there and I'm like oh this is gonna be great because I don't we're not gonna have to have like lots of big conversation or whatever it'll just be like a nice relaxing massage so she's you know just asking me kind of small talk questions as as you know she's rubbing my back or whatever and she's like oh so how many kids do you have oh okay what are their names so I say you know Maggie Calvin Hallie Keela and then she gets really quiet and I'm like that's weird. Uh, she's like, I know. I'm like, what would it, what did I say that would make her be quiet now? And then she's like, you said your son's name is Calvin. And I'm thinking, oh no, <laughs> like, this is not, she's not asking this because only people that care about the name Calvin are either theological or they like baseball. This is like, and I'm thinking she doesn't really strike me as she's going to talk about baseball. So, uh, and a lot of the time people are like, not like John Calvin. So I was, this is what I'm expecting. So I'm like, uh, yeah, yeah. And she's like, what, why did you name him that? And I was like, well, there's a theologian named John Calvin who we really like. We know lots of people don't <laughs> like, try to like cut it off, move on. And I'm like, it's also a nice baseball name. Works out good. And she's like, I was wondering if it was about John Calvin. And I was like, oh yeah. And she's like, I just found out this week. I am a Calvinist. <laughs> what? So she starts telling me this story about how she's been talking to one of the elders at her church because she was feeling so conflicted about disagreeing with some teaching or something that had come up. And, you know, she's like, it just doesn't sit right because of these things, these things. And the elder said to her, well, Fauna, I, I need to tell you this. I think you're a Calvinist. <laughs> she was like, what is that? So then... He told her all about it, whatever. So anyway, that was Turns my first in introduction to your dad. Yeah, that was dad. Good job. Way That's to go. Funny. Va Vana, when she first came to, I remember the first time I met her, 
we were doing a Saturday morning thing. It was a breakfast, but it, and I was doing some teaching. And I remember whatever I was, you know, it may have been on Calvinism or some aspect of it, but I remember it was like, man, she's like boring her eyes. In. <laughs> and you could, you could tell that she's you know, just like brow furrowed. And, yeah, really thinking hard. And uh, which immediately I enjoyed, you know, conversations yeah, yeah. with her. So yeah, we had lots of conversations. She is totally that. That is such an intense listener. Yes. You're like, wow, I feel like you're absorbing everything right? that's going on. Just like taking it all in. Yeah, that's yeah. Fun. All right, Dave, you're up. I mean, let's see if you can yeah, Dad, what keep can you it do? to less than whatever that was. I don't know. You don't, there's we no don't time. even I know. Can get we don't to care. About 1950. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, well, I was born in LA, actually Glendale, and uh, our family moved from there when I was five. We moved to Tucson, Arizona. My dad had been in radio. He was a sound effects man for CBS. He wrote radio programs, acted in them, and then did sound for him. He was Mel Blanc's boss for a while. Uh, all kinds of things like that. He was Dexter on Corliss and Archer, which was a nationwide radio program. And he would come out of the radio uh, thing at Hollywood and Vine to get in the car. My mom would pick him up. We lived in Glendale at that time. And I was a little baby, and I was in the car with her, and I didn't... I'm not sure they had car seats in those days. I think they put you in a laundry basket. That's yes. what I right? yeah, for a long time. And, uh, <laughs> but my mother would, David, get in the car, because all the girls are, oh, it's Dexter, do what you say. <laughs> and and uh, so that was my childhood then. And they had a little pony ride in Glendale, and I always wanted to ride the pony because my dad did the Hoplon Cassidy show. And I got to be on that once. I got mm. paid in hoppy coins that my mother <laughs> threw away. <laughs> I'd be a rich man say, now if I had your mom the threw away? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As a mom who throws me, her kids' no, crap away, I get this. This deeply. is totally, maybe this is the seed of my fear when I am like throwing something away and then I'm like, wait, should I check with them first? Do they need this? I don't know. Like, mm. do they need these Marty Grubbies? She threw away more good stuff when I was in the Navy. <laughs> but anyway, it, it goes on. Then, so my dad and my uncle, my dad's brother, my dad's brother had moved to Tucson in 1940. This is not the five minute yeah. plan here. But Do you anyway, feel it? They started feel a, it. Okay. a company there and we moved there and it became very successful. It was a bearing distributor and it was right at the copper boom in the 50s and I mean... It would, Arizona was like the top of the list. All the big mines were flowing in. They supplied them, and that rocketed them to success. And they were the biggest distributor of SKF bearings and stuff like that. So those companies would come to little old Tucson. In those days, Tucson had 200,000 people in it. And then they'd take them to New York and all these different places. And, and so that kind of thing. So I... We were very fortunate, and uh, we moved immediately into where my dad built a house in the country club and all of that, and we lived there. And, uh, he started getting into horses, and which I totally thought we should do. And <laughs> Big we, fan. Highly supportive we, of this idea. Yeah, and we started raising him there, and then he wanted to move to Sonoida, which is 60 miles southeast of Tucson. And he bought property there, and he tore down 
the old Southern Pacific roundhouse moved all the bricks down there, and then they built a house out of those bricks. And during this time, I was... I had gotten baptized when I was nine at Tucson First Baptist Church and uh, found out later that the pastor there, who I thought was this old person that I had no idea who he was, I found out he was real good friends with S. Lewis Johnson, a guy that started Believer's Chapel and was a big teacher in Dallas back in those days. And anyway, got saved at nine. My parents, they got very successful, very busy doing all kinds of stuff. After my sister got saved, who was four years younger, we quit going to church. And well, and because, like, you come from, on your mom's side, a uh, long line of kind of big-deal Christians yeah. who were not so much actually Christians. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's very Lots much... Lots of hypocrisy. Yeah. Mm. Like, my grandfather on my mother's side helped do the first Billy Graham crusade, mm. was in the same discipleship group with Henrietta Mears, which was Dawson Troutman, Billy Graham, uh, Bill Bright, uh, my grandfather. And he's in the book Dawes, which is the biography of Dawson Troutman. It goes on and on like that. The family, we would move er, in Arizona. We'd come over every August to Balboa Island. The whole family on my mother's side, my, they would rent a whole house. And then her brothers and sisters would bring all their kids in. So we'd go there. And that was August in Balboa. And during that time, I never knew who these people were, but we'd go by their house and my grandfather would always say, you know, hey, Jack, how you doing? It was John John MacArthur's dad. Mm. And they would always be screaming at Johnny, get out of the bay. He's on his little paddle board and stuff. And so anyway, it all, all these things connect up. And then, so I got baptized at nine. We quit going to church and I became generally speaking, the punk, you know. Uh, uh, it, it, the stories go on and on. He was the kind of boy that was also, as soon as puberty hit, very aware of the women folk. Very <laughs> Definitely. And, I mean, like, well, this kind of sums it up. I was in the National Honor Society as a freshman, and I graduated from a class of 525 people 524th. <laughs> so you can that imagine my, yeah, my academic prowess in, in high school wasn't much. You're not living up to your potential. But, but I could rope, and I did want to be a team roper. And uh, we every minute I could, I got away from horses. In the summers, I would work on all the major quarter horse ranches in, in Arizona and by that time we had horses on the racetracks and I would go there and hang with all those people which are not good people <laughs> and but anyway I was doing all of that and then once I graduated from high school uh, then I got uh, went to the University of Arizona stayed there for six months never drew a breath a sober breath but that was right in the middle of Vietnam War, and so it was told to me, well, if you quit, you know, the college, you're going to get drafted, and so at that point, I said, hey, I'll join the Navy and see the world, and so I joined the Navy in 65, and from 65 to 68, they shaped me up. I, uh, I showed up 
with my saddle shoes, Oxford cloth, you know, three button shirt, the whole thing, my sweater, you know, the whole <laughs> got off the bus and the petty officer that ran our, you know, boot camp company, he looked at the guy that had sat next to me on the bus and he said, he's going to be your recruit, you know, training officer and you need to obey him. And I looked at him and I said, why would I obey him? He just got off the bus with me. I, I know as much as he knows. Mm -hmm. And he said, you need to learn your place. <laughs> and he picked me out to be the model. And <laughs> <laughs> they threw me in the brig and the Marines in boot camp. I spent the first two weeks in the brig, or not a week in the brig. And you would go, and when they put you in your bunk, they had a latch with a wire, and they locked that latch, and so you were locked in this little space on the in the bunk bed. And the guy would come by with his baton and clank on that thing and scream at you all kinds of things. And so then when you got up, they had a whistle, and every tweet of the whistle meant you could move and do something. And so I spent the days with a little bucket with a yoke and a sandpail shovel filling up the buckets with sand in a hole and then you'd tweet and they'd put the bucket on your shoulders and then tweet and then you'd trot down to the other hole dump the buckets and load it from that hole and you did that all day long with these guys screaming at you but that you were of no account and you did it so all the recruits could watch what would happen if you didn't mm. do what they wanted you to do so I quickly realized I wanted to get out of there. And this one Marine, you know, he kind of befriended me. And I said, I want to get out of here. What do I do? He said, just obey, just salute, obey, do anything, say yes, sir, you know, all of that. I said, got it. So anyway, they sent me at, and, and from that moment on, I said, I have to figure out how to get to the top of this pile because I want to be the guy right. <laughs> saying what to do, not the guy that has to do it. And, uh, so I got through boot camp, and then the last three days of boot camp, I got pneumonia. So then I had three weeks in the Naval Hospital in San Diego before I could even go home. Then I went home, and then I got sent to the East Coast. My mother was so happy. Oh, he got sent to the East Coast. He doesn't have to go to Vietnam. This is great. And I went to electronic school there, and then I got stationed on a ship in Norfolk. And during that time, though, I was, okay, now I'm going to see the world. So... From Norfolk, every time I got leave, and, and when I was in Bainbridge, I would uh, go out and hitchhike to New York or Boston and go to all the museums. I loved art before that. My parents collected art, kind of. And so I went and did all that and started, actually, I bought some art in Norfolk. And then a gallery owner... You know, he said, well, you need to go to New York and meet the guy and go up to this gallery and tell him I sent you and all this kind of stuff. Well, that was intermediate. Then we got transferred in 1967. Our ship got transferred to Westpac, and we had the Commodore on our ship. So this is a destroyer, and we were the head of the squadron, so it was a squadron of destroyers. Got transferred to Westpac, so at that time, we had the Commodore on our ship, so we got to go to all the great ports. So we went from Norfolk all the way through the Panama Canal, up into Mexico, Acapulco, all of that, then to Hawaii, then, you know, the Philippines, we went to Guam, then the Philippines, 
and Subic Bay was our main point to start from there. And then we got put into Vietnam. And because we had the Commodore, we went all the different places because he wanted to see everything and do all that. So it really was, you know, around the world and the whole thing and going to all the ports. And lots of stories in Vietnam of bad stuff happening. And, and of, we would sail up the river so far that the ship couldn't turn around, so we had to back out of the river because it was a gun platform, basically, they used. And I was, my job was to take care of the 25 radar that shot the, the five-inch guns. And so all of that, I went into that uh, wanting to kill all the commies. And after my experience in Vietnam and saw what we did, because we would go up to the demilitarized zone and put our five-inch shells like a couple hundred yards from the demilitarized zone and not go any farther. Well, the, all the villagers and the Vietnamese, the Viet Cong, they would just run out of little grass shacks and go across the line, and they'd all stand there and watch us blow up these grass shacks laughing at us, knowing that we weren't going to shoot them because they were across the line. And then as we'd sail away, they'd all go back and rebuild their thing, and that was that. And I realized, well, this is ridiculous. We're not going to win this war. Uh, previous to that, my dad had been in politics. He was the advance man for Barry Goldwater when he ran for president in 64. And he took me that summer, and I got to see Reagan being told that he was going to run for governor by the guy that owned TV Guide. And all of that. I had all that backgrounds. And I was also a junior John Bircher. I was a card-carrying member. <laughs> and <laughs> What is that? Uh, the John Birch Society was <laughs> probably the most radical anti-communist group in the hmm. United States at that time. Uh, and so anyway, I came back from the war being totally against it because I realized we didn't have the political will to win. So now I got my head all scrambled up with that. I liked art. I liked girls. <laughs> I, this is a real troubling time. Oh, all of a sudden, a fountain with Linda Ronstadt. Yeah. <laughs> things happen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Linda when she tr started traveling with the, the, I knew Linda in high school, and so when she started traveling with the stone, but you didn't ponies, like her. You liked her cousins or sisters. Uh huh. Yeah, it, it goes on and on. <laughs> I used to, I used to ride to Linda's house and her dad thought I was the greatest thing ever because I would ride my horse over to visit her. Mm. Her dad courted her mom, who was an Eastern socialite, riding his horse. And he said, this is the guy, you know. And Linda didn't care anything. She stole my buddy, buddy Holly records I had. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, so like in the Navy, she would come like the Lancaster so I'd hitchhike to Lancaster and see her and all these people, you know, in the days when everybody had the shoulder-length hair and all of that going on. And I show up in a Navy uniform, and Linda goes, Dave, what are you doing? You know, come on. And all these people are looking at me. This is the guy that's killing the babies in Vietnam. What are you talking to him for? You know, and that's, so I have all this juxtaposition going on like that. So anyway, and I'm still, I would have told you I was a Christian, but if somebody asked me anything about it, you know, I'd say, oh, yeah, Jesus is, you know, he's a good guy. But if they asked me, you're a virgin birth, what do you think about that? Oh, that's in that book. It's not a problem. Mm -hmm. You know, Jesus is a good guy. So anyway, and I'm living like hell during this time. So I finally get out of the Navy. I want to become the next Bob Dylan. 
but my dad wants to start a uh, steakhouse in northern Arizona. So go back. I go up there, and it's the White Mountains, and it's beautiful. It's 8,000 foot, and it's got trout streams everywhere, and I can buy this A-frame cabin and run this restaurant. I said, oh, I can do that. But I'd never done anything like that. It was awful. We, I first had to live in the back of a Cortez mobile home while we dulled the place up. It was just this kind of, you know, siding building that we made a, a built a barbecue that was like 20 foot long and had all the wood and all of that. We barbecued the steaks and it was, it was modeled after Pinnacle Peak, which is giant T-bone steaks, beans, salad, all of that kind of stuff and beer in mason jars. Mm -hmm. And we had 400 rodeo pictures on the wall, and all of them were very unique. They were taken by a person called Ludi Serpa. And if you look carefully at the pictures, it would be like a calf roper roping a calf, and it looked like the guy was just getting off and everything was fine. But the rope, he's getting ready to jerk the rope, and the rope had looped around the calf's front leg and was also around the calf's head. So you realize as soon as this horse stopped, this was going to be a big wreck. Mm -hmm. And like the guy's getting bucked off and you look <laughs> closely and his foot had gone through the stirrup. So he's going to get drugged that way. Or it would be the bull falling on the guy and the guy's like this and this bull's just ready to crush him. So these all these pictures were fantastic. People would, you know, start getting drunk and... And, and looking at the pictures and then I was cooking the steaks and some people would come over and they'd put their hand on the grill, medium rare, I'm ready to go. And it, it was a wild place. <laughs> <laughs> and so during this time, my mom would come, they'd come up eh, for four day weekends and my mom would run a poker game in my cabin and all the Culver's friend was my friend from five years old when we first moved to Tucson, he'd bring all his fraternity brothers up to be the waiters and stuff. And they all kind of slept in my A-frame. But my mother ran this continuous poker game and took money from them all the time. <laughs> and it was just crazy like that. And then, so I did that for a season. Then the winter came and I had bought a fancy sports car that got snowed in and and my deck on the cabin was probably five foot high and the sports car probably was, I don't know, you know, four and a half at the top of the roof. I came out one morning, no sports car, nothing. It just white all the way out, you know? And I said, Whoa, I can't even get out of here. What is this? And then I realized, well, winter is going to really be lonely and I won't be able to go down to Tucson, see my girlfriends, yada, yada. So, I decided. Is that well, plural? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just one moment while I think that's funny. <laughs> so, so then I said, "Well, I'm going to go to New York." Well, I told my dad, and he he goes, "You can't go to New York. You're not going to get a job." Blah, blah, blah. I said, "Nope, that's what I'm going to do." And it was all right because he had hired a lady that ran the Mountain Oyster Club in Tucson to run it, and so Nellie came up to run it, and I went to New York and. So then I lived there for a couple of years, and that was that was really that was the end of the '60s. It was 1969, right into 1970, and I got a job selling art on Madison Avenue. Long story how I got introduced to all these people. 
but it was incredible. I mean, that part of the 60s in New York City, I literally, I mean, you name it, I was there <laughs> at John Lennon's birthday party. And all this all connects up because as I finally get involved in my Christian life, I started meeting people like a guy named Tony Cox, who was Yoko Ono's first husband. And he actually lived with John and Yoko when they were married in the Netherlands together with him. He was at John's birthday party that I was at at the same time because with the art business, our gallery <laughs> showed John Lennon's uh, lithographs that he made. I do time. think it's a, it is a good, um, it's a good way that God like both revisits like consequences of your sin on you, but also like opportunities to turn it into something good. He uh -huh. has had, he has, don't worry if my dad is discipling you, it doesn't mean this. You might not be one of these ones, but <laughs> he has had a consistent string of crazy people or people who really, Tony seemed just very damaged by drugs. Like yeah. you're like, okay. Yeah. And then is like, once my dad was saved, that's like, was a large part of his ministry was People, people coming out of some weird times, uh -huh. I guess, because you also had come out of some weird times. Yeah. Well, because it makes you more fit to do the work. Like, yeah. we talk about this a lot right yep. now. It's like, when you are going through something rotten and hard, even if it's because of your own sin, yep. that is God forming you into the kind of person who can then be useful no, in his totally. kingdom in a particular direction. Especially because, like, you won't freak out because yeah. you're like, oh, yeah, no, this, I know what this is. Whatever. Yeah. A lot of those guys, they come to me because the crazies, I'm like a magnet, they come. Uh, some are success stories, and that's what mm -hmm. Mo is saying. Others that's aren't. So you, they totally get where you're coming from, but they get to that line. Mm -hmm. And God has blessed me with the ability to say hard things to people with a smile. And so they'll take it from me where sometimes they don't take it from somebody else. Yep. But at least it, I can know, get them on that knife edge where they got to make a decision. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that all went through. Then I uh, decided, okay, uh, at this point, I'd learned a few chords on my guitar, and I was starting to write some songs. And I, I said, all right, I should plug in with my dad and and you know use his thing to further my musical career because he knew all kinds of people. So I called him up and I said, look, I want you know. I still want to be the next Bob. That ah, guy's a communist, you know. <laughs> and he said, "Okay, I'll call. I'll call some friends around, and I'll get you a thing." So anyway, he got me an interview at Capitol Records, and I got a job as an A and R guy. And it it was all time. I'm kind of shuffling the deck here and stacking a couple of months, or this can go on forever. So anyway, I came to Tucson. Mm -hmm. And my plan was to move to L.A. and take this job. Well, when I get to Tucson, I go, I go to my friend's apartment, Culver, who I'd known, like I said, for, since I'm five years old. And the newest Bob Dylan album had come out. And so I brought it over to Culver's and put it on his stereo. He had nice stuff. We're, I'm playing it. I'm, yeah, this one's good. And I'm looking over across the room, and there's this girl playing chess with a guy, Mike Moody, who I knew was Culver, one of his uh, classmates. And I said, I said, Culver, who's that chick over there with Mike? And he said, oh, that's Gail Reed. He says, and I said, Did Mike hooked up with her? No. He said, no. He's here. He's teaching her how to play chess for her because she's going to, you know, babysit some kid. 
I said, he's teaching her how to play chess. And at that time... Move out of the way, Mike. <laughs> yeah, I said, I can teach you how to play chess. <laughs> so, anyway, I said, so it's okay, I go after this chick. And Culver said, yeah, sure. I go, okay. So, <laughs> so I went over in the hallway. I saw her go to the bathroom. I get in the hallway. And I'm waiting for her to come out. She opens the it's door. It's not creepy at all. <laughs> Open the door. There's a the guy. Hey. I literally look at her and said, my name's Dave Light. Would you marry me? And she, she looked at me and she said, what? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, and I said, well, I just, you know, I want to get to know you. And she immediately said, well, I don't know about the marriage, but you can take me to dinner. <laughs> and what was it five and a half months later we got married you know? wow <laughs> i like so, that that's decisive got it done yeah uh-huh so anyway all of that was fast and during that time my job had gotten cemented at capital and so we got married honeymooned in yuma arizona for yeah. one night with yeah. our u-haul hauling no, nice a, a volkswagen behind it <laughs> Got to our apartment in North Hollywood, and I show up on Monday for work, and I'm all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and I show up, and uh, I walk in the lobby, and I say, my name's Dave Light, and I'm here to see George Jones, and it's not the George Jones that you're thinking about. <laughs> the guy's name was George Jones. He was an A&R guy at Capitol at the time. And the lady said, well, I'm sorry. Uh, Mr. Jones and that whole department's been uh, let go. We, we're reorganizing right now. I said, reorganizing? What are you talking about? And she said, well, Amet Etragon just bought Capitol Records. And I said, the guy that owns Atlantic? And she said, yeah. And I said, oh, so you're telling me all the people I know that I got in here are not going to be here? And she said, yeah. She <laughs> said, you're welcome to fill out a form. And I said, yeah, I know how that goes. <laughs> and so... Basically, Capitol Records was being totally reorganized, and I show up, and I told her, I said, you know, I just got married. We just have an apartment in North Hollywood, moved here from Arizona. Blah, blah, blah. She goes, Sorry. that's all I can do. <laughs> so I go home, and it's like 11 o'clock by the time I get back to North Hollywood, and I, Gil goes, well, that was quick, and I said, oh, <laughs> not only it, quick, it is really bad. <laughs> she goes, what are we going to do? I said, I don't know. We'll just figure something out, and... Uh, so my uncle had a business that cleaned uh, restaurant filters and stuff like that. And he was always looking for people to do his horrible job. And they'd vacuum air conditioning ducts. And at the time... And you had to be really tiny. To and I was them. tiny and weighed like 140. <laughs> and you get up on these huge ladders up in the air conditioning ducts and aircraft plants and have a long extension cord with a little vacuum. And you'd crawl through and vacuum the inside of these air conditioning ducts. <laughs> in the middle of the night. That's so, not as cool as a <laughs> So anyway, we did that. Gail had been a paralegal. She got a job with Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher in downtown L.A., which is a major firm in L.A. And we hot-racked it. I mean, I worked at night. She worked during the day. And we'd take the little car and go and come back and did all that. And saved our money and decided we'd go to New York. Well, we had enough money to go in Thanksgiving time. And so we flew back to New York, and we had two work days before Thanksgiving holiday. And both of us got a job within two days. <laughs> wow. And so we 
then we said, okay, well, we'll move to New York. So we, we flew back to LA, gathered our stuff, put it in a, I forget how we did it in those days. They had like a box you could put on a, a moving truck or whatever. And so we moved to New York and both of us had a job and all of that, but we didn't have any place to live. So a friend of mine that had got me introduced around and got me the art business thing, he was in Puerto Rico for like three months. And uh, he said, well, you can use my apartment if you can get Peter out of there. He had a guy that was looking his apartment over. So I had met this Peter guy before when I lived in New York. So I knocked on the door and he opened the door. He said, Dave, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I just moved here and I just got married and I need a place to stay. And I hate to be one, but can you find another place to stay? Because Walter said, if you move out, I can move in. And he goes, yeah, I could do that. He <laughs> I said, like people like this. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and, Probably find a spot. So he moved out, but it took, he said, I need about a week. So I had to go over and live with friends that I had from the Navy. And this is a whole other story. When we were in the Navy, and I was hitchhiking up to New York. I'd hitchhike with this one guy who knew a guy that was teaching at Fordham. He graduated from Columbia really wackadoodle, socialistic, crazy kind of people. And when the Students for Democratic for Society first started, I went to, into the original meetings with Mark Rudd and this friend of mine, or a friend of my friend. So I was in that, in the Navy, <laughs> going to that. When the, and those are the days in New York when they were blowing up the apartments and doing all kinds of stuff. And Dad, you have to cut more of this out because it's going to be a three-hour... Can I just say, I was just thinking, I appreciate all of my thoughts that three minutes would even contain anything. Anything. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I can jump to when I got saved. Because, okay. like, I'm, I'm 25 years old at this point, or 24, or whatever. Because we still have another decade, right, before that happens? Yep. Oh, yeah. yeah 12 years before that happens. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it goes like on and on like that. It happened after he got saved, too. So, like, yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> so, anyway, then, then we moved to, uh, uh, let's see. We did New York. Both of us were successful. We were going to buy a townhouse. But Gail had an experience in the supermarket where the old lady's poking her with the umbrella and we thought we wanted to start to have kids and that kind of stuff and we both said well why don't we move you know do something different and we we kind of we had tried to buy the competitive business at this time i worked for a very elite picture frame making company that made frames for museums and i wanted to buy their competitor my dad helped me by sending the account that he had in, in Arizona to uh, the New York office to have them look at the deal. I didn't know it, but on the other side of the thing, he's telling him, find this thing so he doesn't buy it. And then he calls me up and says, we have a new distributorship in San Diego. And, uh, you know, Uncle Charlie and I'd like you to come and live in San Diego and run it. So I told Gail about it and we looked at each other and said, San Diego, that sounds good. Yeah, mm -hmm. hey, we can do that. And so that's what happened. The deal fell through to buy the thing because the account had arranged Anyway, so we, we then moved to from New York City to 
Coronado Island. We had a, an apartment there and everything. And of course, at 6.30 at night, everybody's in bed. We're looking at each other. What's, where's the party? What's happening here? <laughs> you know? And so we opened that distributorship. And at that time, I knew how to where to go in the Navy to call, and they were the main customer. I go on the to call in the ship, and the chief looks at me and he says, how did you know to call on me? And I was all dressed up in a sport coat and a tie and everything, and nobody in San Diego looks that way. And the guy's looking at me like, what the, how did you know to call on me? And I told him I was in the Navy. Well, what ship were you on? And all that. And so we trade Vietnam stories. He says, go down to the cheese quarters. I'm going to bring you something. Go down to the cheese quarters. He comes in with a stack of about four inches of message traffic saying that the product I was selling was outlawed by the Navy. Any, if you're using any of it, take it out and throw it away. And I said, this is not good for me. <laughs> and the guy said, no. And he said, can you get these? And he showed me a John Crane Type 1 seal. And I said, I know what that is. Now, I had only taken a two-week course to learn about this product up in Boston, Massachusetts at the factory. So I'd only seen pictures of this thing that he showed me. And I said, oh, yeah, I can probably get those. You know, if that's what he wants. i got to find him and make a deal. So I come back and tell Gail that, you know, what we're selling is outlawed. I get on the phone with my dad and my uncle, and they say, well, find something you can sell. So I got in the Thomas Register. In those days, it was a big green book that shows people. And I found a place in Odessa, Texas that made parts like this. And I called them up, and this goes on and on. All the connections with these guys just crazy. But the first guy I spoke to was Ducky Matthews. And he goes, Ooh, what are you looking for there? Where you calling up from? <laughs> and I said, you know, I'm looking for these Type 1 Manel seals, you know, tungsten carpet. Ooh-wee, them is high dollar. You got money to pay for this? <laughs> he says, we can make them, but you got to give us the money up front. <laughs> you know, so I mean, a guy like Ducky. <laughs> You gotta His boss was Mike Trout, the same guy, the same name that was on Dobson. I don't know if you remember that guy. But anyway, so it, we get going. We get, we're successful there. It, it's growing. And so we open an office up in L.A. So then we moved to L.A. So we're in Redondo Beach in an apartment, and Gail gets pregnant. And here comes Morgan. <laughs> so, you know, it's like... Okay, I guess we'll do this. And <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> Seems like a good idea. They remodeled Torrance Hospital, and we're in there, and I'm bringing Gail beer while she's you know, <laughs> smuggling it in because, you know, this is bad, you know. And we took all the classes and all the stuff, and as soon as I touched her when it was really getting tight, don't you dare touch me and it's like 400 pound nurse looked at me and she patted me and she said it's okay i know you trained and everything this happens all the time you're the guy that did this you know? and, so, <laughs> and so anyway morgan came and and uh then you know oh my goodness what are we going to do with this you know and we ended up buying a house and not supervise her properly that's what you're going to do <laughs> Still, too much adventure. Yeah, we're still not saved, but we're moving up the ladder and doing all kinds of stuff. And we bought a house in Pell's Verdes at that time. And things are going and we just keep making stuff. And and I'm kind of getting empty. Like, is this it? Is this what you do? You just keep learning stuff and make more money and then maybe get another, buy another place and do that? 
pretty much I'm seeing that's what's happening. And uh, I didn't know it, but Gail kind of was, she was thinking, this is, we just, we don't want to do this. We, we do all kinds of crazy stuff. So I'd gone over to Arizona to go to a ride, and she found a house. So we had a friend that was a real estate agent, always showing her. Found a house. She calls me up, and she says, I want to buy this house. It's got a room for a pool table. That's the only thing that qualification you said, I want to buy it. I said, can we afford it? Yeah, okay, do it. You know, we'll, when I come back, we'll do it. So that's the house that Morgan and, and LD and all of us lived in. So we're still going along. The business is growing. We had to move our store to a bigger place. We're in a bigger thing and everything. We needed a salesman. So I put this ad in the paper, and the salesman, Daryl, answered the ad, and he comes in for the interview. And it's like 4 o'clock in the afternoon. We got our feet on the desk, and we're drinking a beer. And he said, do you want a beer? And he said, oh, no, thank you. And I said, okay. And I explained the job, and he said, well, i got to tell you something. So this sounds interesting to me, but I've got to tell you that I would witness to people that uh, I'm a Christian. And uh, he said, uh, you realize that I've left Campus Crusade, and I did it for doctrinal reasons, but I still would witness on this job. I looked at him, Gail's like rolling her eyes, she's reading the biography of Elvis. I look at this guy, and, and I go, well, I'm a blinkety-blank Christian too. <laughs> Gail had a mouth that she would embarrass chiefs if they came in our place. And, you know, I I told I mean, he looked at me, and I'll never forget the look on his face when I said, you know, well, I'm a Christian. And he goes, oh, okay. And, <laughs> and he said, well, he said, I really do think I want the job, but I'm going to have to go home and pray with my wife. And I said, pray, take the job or, you know, what the heck? And he said, no, no, I'll be able to call you in the morning. I said, okay. So the next morning he calls up and he said, take the job. And I said, well, can you come on in? I said, the training is following me around. We get in the car, we're going to go to these customers and you're just going to have to learn on because there's no way to learn about it. Whatever. He said, fine. So first day, gets in the car and I'm playing Bob on the you know, tape deck thing and we're driving around and he goes, do you ever go to conferences? And I said, conference for what? You know, <laughs> yeah, I've been to some to sell stuff and he said, no, no, conferences to kind of improve yourself and learn about things and, and uh, you know, stuff like that. And I said, no. Well, he keeps building to it and a couple of weeks go by and he said, well, actually, these conferences are to learn how to study the Bible. And I said, oh, I'll study the Bible. Yeah, I'm interested in that. He brightens right up. And I said, oh, I did that in New York. I said, I took a class on how to be a shaman at the New School of Social Research in New York. And I said, I went to this bookstore and I bought an ASV Bible. And I, I said, it was a satanic bookstore, but they had this Bible. And, and I said, I bought a red pen. And I took that Bible home, and I was going to underline everything that God said in red. You know what happened to me, Daryl? I said, I got through partway through Genesis, and the red felt-tip pen ran out of ink. And I said, I realized God must have said a lot of that stuff in the Bible. And he looked at me, and he goes, hmm, that's a start. <laughs> the next day, he shows up with a leather <clears throat> NIV Thompson chain reference Bible with my name in gold on it. Mm -hmm. And he said, so... What do, you, what do you say we start the day off and we'll have a little Bible study? 
And sure enough, he did it. And he told me, he says, now when you go home, I want you to read 1 John. Not John, I want you to read 1 John. I said, okay. So I go home, and Gail says, you are not going to read that Bible. But I said, well, he told me to. I, and during that time, I would have a bunch of drinks and play pool, and then come in and read and do whatever. So I get in the bed, and I open the Bible, and I say, I'm not reading that First John stuff. I'm going to read Revelation. I know that's got good stuff in it. So I turn to that. I get to, like, chapter 6. I look over at Gail, and I said, you know, if this stuff is true, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. <laughs> and she goes, talk to me about that. Are you kidding? And, and so I fold it up, come into work, and I tell Dale, no, he says, don't read Revelation. Very confusing. I said, no, it isn't. I said, it looks to me like these Christian people, they're in this category, Satan's in this category, and you got to be in the good side or you're going to be in a lot of trouble. Well, you do get it, but I want you to read First <laughs> John. <is> true. <laughs> so it, it goes on like this. He, I mean, I'm not really moving ahead. And I think about a week went by, and then I came home, and Gail wasn't there. She was somewhere. I might have been taking you to one of those Girl Scout things or whatever you were in. Were you in the Girl Scouts? Not Girl Scout, but it was. I was in Brownies for like two seconds. Yeah, it was in some other thing, some YMCA thing that was. Oh, I. Yeah. Oh, wow, I forgot about that. Yeah. Uh, Indian princesses. That was it. Wow. Indian yeah. Oh, princesses. wow, you would not be allowed to do that now. <laughs> I completely forgot about that. I totally. Yeah. That, wow, yes. So, anyway, That's she was crazy. gone and Morgan was gone. Can we so, push pause for just a second? Yeah. I got to go use the bathroom. <laughs> Oh, that's do it. Oh, okay. Go ahead. We're back. He got okay. saved. Yay! He yeah. got saved and everybody went everybody to the bathroom. Saved. Yeah, I read First John 2, 4 finally. And that was the thing that turned me around that I was doing the things. And I realized if I'm doing those things, I'm not a Christian. When I read that, it hit me like a brick. I got out of bed, got on my knees, and I said, God, if this stuff is real, help me to understand it. Yeah. Well, and isn't it funny that that is actually, for both of you, that is the part where all of a sudden you're looking at a, wait a minute, if I'm a Christian, maybe I should live like one. Like, and if, if this is what a Christian is and I'm not that, then maybe I want to be a Christian. You know, I mean, like it is those moments of wide disparity between what you're saying you think and what you're actually living like that is like, oh, that's not fitting. Is it now? Maybe I should fix that. And if I got all this baggage, how do I get rid of this baggage? For reals. Yeah. So yeah. anyway. That's good. Got saved and then it started, okay, the Bible's the source of the information. How do I learn about that? So I started buying different translations. Daryl uh, told me to buy one of those polyglot ones that had four different translations and stuff. So I'm wandering around with a stack <laughs> of books like this. Going to the Brethren Church in Long Beach and then... We decided we'd go to a church closer to ours, but Daryl interviewed the pastor and all this kind of stuff, got up here. But pretty soon I looked at him and I said, well, how do I know which one of these books is right? He said, I just have the guy that you need to meet. So he took me to Grace Seminary West at that time. Grace was trying to start a seminary out here from Leno Lake, a brethren seminary. And he took me in to meet the dean of the seminary. And I come in, and this guy's got the beard and the whole thing, and he's, and what can I help you with? And I said, I want to know which version of the Bible I need to read. And he said, Greek starts on Monday. You're welcome to attend. 
And uh, I said, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm not. And he, he said, no, no, seriously, it's at night. You can take it, you know, it'll be good. So come home and I tell Gail, the guy told me I gotta take great, she's laughing. She, but I did it and that's how I really got started. And it just rolled over from there, learning all kinds of things, meeting all kinds of different people. How old were you when you were safe? 37. And you were late 30s, <clears throat> early 40s when things started to kind of clip along and yeah. become a thing. Match. It's kind of amazing. Right? I always think about that because I remember a few different times. Like when I had Hallie, I turned 30 right after having Hallie. And realizing that my dad wasn't even a Christian for seven more years. Mm -hmm. I was like, whoa. Yeah, yeah, it was really weird. Yeah. Well, okay, so it is funny. We're, we have a couple of specific questions, which you covered a lot of them, and you didn't cover a lot of them. But this is actually the funny thing. One of the questions that Mo said this morning she was going to ask is like, what jobs have you had? Which, mm -hmm. there, there are a lot of things that between our two families are hilariously similar, and there are some things that are wildly different. And this is one of the places, this is a watershed. So, Dad, <laughs> how many jobs have you had? Well, if you count picking strawberries <laughs> one, one summer as a job. And making french fries I do. as an old man at the farm. Yeah, okay. Well, then maybe four. There or you five. go. Yeah, I don't know. Really? Yeah. Well, cause That's I, amazing. Yeah, because I started, uh, I mean, I picked strawberries for a few years. Um, I started working at a grocery store when I was 16. Yeah, yeah. And worked there for 11 years with a short little break while... Uh, I was going to school. I thought I wanted to be a dentist. I was going to the I went to a community college. So that's a very fun dentist, but oh, you, uh, your appointments would take forever. Cause... And I would, I would have hated it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, in retrospect, but uh, there was one uh, one summer I took off, and I guess I was a lifeguard and a swimming instructor for one one summer because I had taken that earlier on. But again, I think I made seven hundred dollars the whole summer, and that was just because I wasn't doing anything else. Um, but yeah, so basically the grocery store and then I was a fireman. I started that job in 79. That's amazing. Worked there for about 40 years. Uh, so yeah, I've made French fries at the farm uh, part-time and I teach school part-time. So. Oh yeah, there you go. Yeah. So I not, that's technically a job. Yeah, not much. I mean, realistically <laughs> yeah. too, you know, grocery store and fire department are meaningful jobs. But uh -huh. still that's amazing that even with all the little fiddly jobs factored in you're under 10. Oh, oh yeah. yeah that's yeah, like way, way wow 10, so, yeah yeah and even the you know i mean even the idea of taking risks i, I mean i think of my life it's like i don't really think i ever took risks i mean other than you know you might i i guess you could say well, occasionally i took a risk at work uh, because the you know the job had some required it, yeah though. some required but hanging I, off of cliffs yeah because I, I never felt rope. like that was all that risky but mm -hmm, as far mm -hmm. as you know like job risks yeah. or I, I didn't feel like it was a risk to get married I you know those when we had kids I didn't see, see that as a risk I, I don't see my life as or at least me as a risk taker yeah, necessarily yeah. which is super funny because even when you were talking about the fact that you know you grew up in white picket fence yeah. 50s land like that really was your foundation was a stable happy chill white picket fence life which kind of sets you up for not really being a wild risk taker and you grew up in a whole bunch of you know like we picked up everything and we moved to a totally different place no, and started risk taking because your dad yeah. was My selfishly dad motivated but was totally always like looking for the next big, big jump thing. he could make yeah, yeah. always because yeah. how many jobs have you had oh 
like so many jobs right yeah, now. Like, I was even trying to like even if you counted by genre, you'd be over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I ran a restaurant. I've been a waiter. I've been the dishwasher. I've done all of that kind uh-huh. of stuff. Uh, like tons I said, of ranch jobs. Yeah. Oh yeah. All of mm-hmm. that. Uh, all of them. All yeah. the different things and different horse jobs. I mean, yeah, I can't even tell that one. Well, yeah, I can. <laughs> <laughs> what horse job can you not tell? No, well, I'm really curious. Well, uh, uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, uh, I worked for uh, Art Pollard, mm-hmm. who had a, a, a band of brood mares, and they're in. If you have to artificially inseminate yep. a cow, some I mean, or a horse, you have to. I've seen Mike Rowe do this with cows, though, not with horses. Right. Yeah. But yeah, it's you have gross. to generate the substance that needs yes. to be inseminated. Yep. Been there, done that. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I've also had my arm this far up, you know, yep. doing <laughs> the insemination. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that job. Uh, I've been an exercise boy. Uh, on a racetrack, uh, yeah, all of that. What else did I do? The art world. Oh yeah. I mean, well, that, we that sold probably... the Culver and I had a pretty good business. We sold horse manure. We collect it up and then take it to people's houses and do it. And my dad, you know, after we did it for a while, and he noticed the money we were making. He then wanted us to rent the truck from him and do all that <laughs> and pay him for the horse poop, you know. So we did that because he taught us, you know, you had to pay yep. something for your inventory and, and do all that. Uh, and then the Navy was an interesting job mm-hmm. and learned all kinds of things there. You're a pool hustler. Yeah. Is that a yeah. job? Yeah, that is a job. I guess that, that is, that was your job, yeah. I've done that. <laughs> and uh, My mom was not impressed with that as a... As a husbandly providing, uh, no. she was like, she didn't no. think pool hustling <laughs> was the right. Not that it. is not the right. <laughs> that worked for my uncle in the restaurant, taking the filters out of restaurants, and then cleaning the air conditioning ducts, doing that kind of stuff. Then got back to New York, got a job in the frame company, first as a salesman for them, uh, and then they opened a showroom in the Sherry Netherlands Hotel the bottom floor it ran that for a while uh my pictures in town and country i have mm-hmm. that issue of that great nice. shops on madison avenue that you have to go to and i'm the guy that was supposed to show you all that and then i went to work in their factory because they were so screwed up in their production line and tracking all the stuff i did that for a while uh then did the packing and seals learned how to, multiple jobs there yeah yeah i mean everything from design of the things to selling it to putting them together all of that and learned all kinds of stuff from suppliers that I had I went to Texas several times to learn a lot of tricks of the engineering of it because you know I didn't know anything just buy the book and read about it I don't think oil wells count as a job but your tie also is yeah. more like a spiritual that's, lesson that's uh-huh. my dad's tie from that's our oil idea. experience mm-hmm. one time we had 30 oil wells oh wow and a crazy story You've also av- narrowly avoided a few careers, including pig farming. Well, and ranching. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh-huh. We were going to have a pig farm with 5,000 oh, yeah, pigs when we first I got remember that because Texas. don't you have a pig tie? Uh, yes, yeah. I Okay. Do. I feel like yeah. I remember yeah. the story when I asked about the pig tie. Okay. <laughs> Listen, so okay. here's a question. Yeah, a so, you ha- so two guys, both currently fruitful, faithfully following the Lord, 
having a lot of impact in what you're choosing to do with your 70s right now. One coming from stable, low risk, you know, just moving along the same direction a long time. One wild ride, adventure everywhere, but like similar in pace, you know, kind of like, oh yeah, it was kind of a Christian, but not maybe not really, not not applying it well. And then coming to like a real applied faith on the ground later. Uh, what are the, so for each style, you could obviously say like, you guys are being believers. You're the kind of men we would say, Hey boys, pay attention. Like look at this and go that way. But obviously two different ways to walk that. So for being a low risk plotter, dad, what would be the benefits of that and what would be the cautions like what are the things that are good hey take away this is the benefit of long steps in the same direction over a long time and what are the risks of that um well i I, in in one sense i guess uh you know you think of the christian life as primarily plotting for most of us i mean you're doing the same thing over and over and over again uh and you know working you know, working to do it better, but also it's it's not, you know, it isn't a free-flowing, innovative uh, lifestyle. I mean, it, it, it does have mm-hmm. boundaries, and it, you know, the path is narrow, and we're called to stay on that path. But we're, you know, we're also, I think, for maybe the risks is, uh, you know, when you when you look at the opportunities that are in front of you, sometimes I. I think, well, maybe, you know, so one, one thing that I never did was promote, um, mm-hmm. you know, so I, I never promoted beyond being just a fireman and, uh, which, you know, which is, uh, for most guys is kind of unusual. There aren't a lot of guys that retire as firemen. Um, there's some, but not a lot. And, you know, some of that was, wasn't so much risk as I just really enjoyed what I was doing. And the only reason I would have promoted was for more money. And I just didn't feel like I needed more money. I mean, I felt like we had, if you want to feel like you have more money, well, don't spend so much. And <laughs> then, you, then you'll, feel, you'll feel like you have, you know, as much money as the next guy. But, uh, you know, and s- sometimes, and, and Laura even pushed me towards promotion, you know, at certain times in my career. And I sort of bucked against that because I did, at the end of the day, I just didn't want to. I really liked what I was doing, and I realized that that was just something that I didn't want to do it just for the money. I, you know, if, if you're going to promote, you ought to do it because you actually want to be a captain or a battalion chief or you know whatever you want to do that job. And I didn't feel like I did. So I guess maybe the caution would be you know that it limit it might limit what your scope of things that you could do. So say like you know if as a Christian you decide hey what I'd really like to do is go to seminary. Um, and you know that's a, a path that I might want to pursue. I might be inclined as a non-risk taker to go well, but I don't want to quit my job, or I don't want to not do other things so that mm-hmm. I can go to seminary. So I think that that might be the danger of it. Um, but it does save you from a lot of potential heartaches mm-hmm. because I I knew a lot of people. Uh, especially at work, you had lots of guys that tried different things because firemen often have second jobs, and lots of those kind of crashed and burned. Uh, mm-hmm. But they mm-hmm. took the risk. Mm-hmm. And, uh, again, I I just never did. I I basically never worked outside of the fire department. One because I I didn't want to be dependent on 
an, ex, an external income because I knew if I had an external income, I'd just spend more money. Uh, and you know, and I recognized again that I, I really did enjoy the fire service <coughs> a lot because I got a lot of time off. I could spend time home with family and, and do a lot of other things as opposed to working all the time, which mm-hmm. a lot of guys did, so. Okay, Dave, what is the benefit of a wild adventure life with lots of risk? And what is the, what's the caution? What's the danger? I don't think there's any danger if you do it right. The the issue is, can you predict that you probably can provide tomorrow? Because the Bible teaches if you think you're going to do business here and do this, and you know, James, uh, you're a fool. Because <laughs> God always has a way to change it up. And like John was saying, yes, a Christian is expected to do the same thing. But it's always different mm-hmm. because you're talking with people. Mm-hmm. And that person is definitely different than that person. And, you know, what you say to them can be taken way differently by this guy. Mm-hmm. So as you get to know people, you, you relate to them. But the job situation and moving is, you know, once you get married, now you're responsible for that woman to take along on this ride also. So you do have to make decisions that I can give you three squares a day and we'll have a roof over our head but this looks like a fun risk to take now hopefully if you're that kind of risk taker you marry the right person that person knows Mm -hmm. what they're getting into Uh, I think when you're a Christian that can be done much that uh, sales pitch can be much better done than I did it I just, you know, hey, you know who I am. Let's let's do this. You know, that's fun kind of for those kind of people. But like when Morgan met Sean, I mean, Sean absolutely knew, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, you know, like that. And like when he came and said, and I'm, I'm sure you want to ask the question, how am I going to make money and take care of your daughter? Well, I can tell you, I'm probably never going to have a lot of money and that's that. That's the end of that part of the discussion. But I will take care of her mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. So the the risk-taking, people think, oh, you, you live in a nice house and you got a nice job and you're going to forsake that. Well, if you don't like that and you're miserable and you know it's just this endless treadmill of making more stuff and making more money and fighting that battle on a bigger stage, if you don't really enjoy that, why do you want to do that? Mm-hmm. So change it up. Do something different. Mm-hmm. And... The, the big thing I always tell the young people is find something you really like and try to wa- find a way to make a living at it. Because then you're not going to work. You're doing something you really enjoy, and so you're just going to do that. And I think my son has been fortunate. <clears throat> in, it took him a while to gain those skills, but now that he has those skills, he is doing it because he enjoys doing that thing. He did not enjoy cleaning bathrooms and no. the women's bathroom surprise bags. That's what he said. But that was <laughs> that was his military. No, it's only to get get to where you're trying to go. Yep, yep. To, yeah. to learn, there are times where you just got to stick your nose in it, make it happen, show up every day, even if that's the last place on the planet you got to be. And that's boot camp for me. Boot camp for LD was being the janitor. Mm-hmm. And, well, and for your kind of person, my kind of person, it's like learning how to keep doing things you don't 
actually like. And then like, if you're not the risk taking type, it's the other, it's like how to, how to let loose a little bit sometimes and try a different and jump thing. start a different thing. Yeah, and it's a yeah. balance. Yep. Yeah. Cause it seems like both of those are like, those are both things that you need to ground yourself yeah. in. Christianly speaking, you need to, you need to be able to, you know, I mean, if like you jumping to a new job and taking a risk is selfishly, you just hitting the dopamine button on your life and like, mm-hmm. Wee! you know, then like, Hey, if you're that, just looking like, for we, maybe right, be careful, maybe yeah. watch out. But also if you're petrified of anything, you know, I mean, like if, if you are plotting because you're petrified of anything different or that might change, then that also is just selfishly guarding your own preferences rather than wisely looking at what, what do I have to do here? What ought I be up to? And, you know, for me thinking about, you know, coming to ECS to teach, I initially was doing a little bit with the capstone kids and then with omnibus, which is, I mean, that's just in my wheelhouse to read books and talk about it. I mean, you know, and to, to facilitate discussions. That, that doesn't take any work whatsoever for me, other than reading the book. Right. I mean, you know, if it's a book I've never read before, obviously I have to read it. But when I took on second grade Bible... Like, <laughs> I loved when I found out you were doing that. I was me like, too. what? Yeah, it's like, man. It's <laughs> 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 Donald talk. He's going to finish telling us that. Yeah, I mean, when I took on second grade Bible... I realized all of a sudden, well, I know a decent amount about the Bible, but I don't know anything about teaching second graders. Right. I mean, I like little kids, but, you know, I can remember feeling completely inadequate from time to time. I mean, like, they've taken over the class and I don't know what to do with them. Um, I think agreeing to that is a pretty big risk. (laughs) Right? Yeah, well, maybe. Yeah, it didn't seem so when I said I could do that because it was just one of the teachers. Because you're only thinking about content. You're like, I know the Bible. Sure, I know the Bible. I I probably know more than the seven-year-olds. Right. Right. I I could keep up with them. And but that that was actually fairly hard because there's so much organization. I mean, there's you know, and you actually have to try to teach. You're teaching little kids, which is not the same as teaching a 20 year old or like somebody who's just happy to go with you. You're like, Oh, I have to kind of convince you that you want to come with me. How how does that look like? And and then, you know, when I said, okay, to teaching introductory logic again, I don't know anything about logic. So I'm, I'm learning it as we go. And I just today, I, yesterday's class felt like a train wreck to me. I mean, Mm -hmm. just, we were going over, well, sort of going over a paper, kind of grading it in class, and it was writing syllogisms, and it was just not working. I mean, their syllogisms were wildly different, you know, than they needed to be, and there's no way to just corral that. So I said, give me your papers, I'll I'll grade those. And then I got home and I thought, you know what, I'm not gonna grade them. We're just gonna go back over it step by step. I mean, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna go back over this exercise in class, and we're just gonna do it slowly, and you know, because obviously watching the video and letting them do the work, at least at this point in our logic is not working. Mm-hmm. And I told him this morning, I said, hey, I, I, I feel like a failure from yesterday and we're going to try something different because yep. that didn't work. Yep. And when we left today, I said, well, how was that? They all said that worked way better. Yeah. Good. Okay. Because again, I'm just learning how to teach that class. I'm not right. only learning logic, I'm actually learning how to teach them logic. Right. And, and I don't have any background in that. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's, it's where I, I recognize, you know, it's like, what in the world are you doing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they let you do this? I right? know that feeling <laughs> so much from kindergarten and first grade. I was just like, I do not know how to do this. Like, this uh-huh. is not my thing. 
I, I felt it's like amazing how stupid you can feel Mm -hmm. because you're like, but I know how to read and I know you and I feel like I should be able to to teach you how to read. Yes. Uh But there's so many spots that you can really go wrong. And Mm -hmm. especially because if you're watching somebody that's really good at it, that has a bunch of experience, it looks so easy. It looks like they're not even trying. Like Mm -hmm. it looks like they're just, just breezily going through it. And then you realize, Oh, they did. They are like extremely prepared Mm -hmm. and they already also know the 10 main problems that are going to come up. Like, mm-hmm. you know, cause I feel like the first time you teach something, especially kids are like asking you questions. You're like, that's a good question. Why didn't I think of that? Like, right. Also, I don't know the answer. I'm right. Sure right. To totally. To it's like, that. I'm not even good enough at this yet. We were just talking this morning about, uh, something educationally speaking, I guess. I'm just talking about like dry dirt. Like, have you ever, you know, at the end of the summer when you go to water a plant that you haven't watered in too long and you pour the water on top of crusty, like, too dry dirt the water just sits on top and laughs at you yeah. where it's like it's not going in there and then you have to actually poke holes in the dirt to yeah, get yeah. the water to go in and like thinking about you know watering is just telling people the stuff but like if you're telling people if you're trying to teach somebody something and it's just sitting on top it's not going in and you're like nope there it is it's just a puddle of water on top of that dirt like you have to figure out what kind of tool do I need to get the hole in the dirt so it soaks in? Like, and that's it's not always the same tool because it's not always the same dirt. And, right. Well, yeah. and each each student is different. I mean, yep. you know, I bumped up against a student today that it's like, man, I don't know how else to say it. Yep. I, yep. I just I, I I don't know what else to do. Right. I, I, yep. I think I'm making it as absolute plain and but at some level too that hey, some of them just don't get it. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, so that yep. I've got. 14 students in there and there's a few of them that just aren't getting it yep and, and you can usually predict their math grade from from that reaction yeah. to logic as well you're like okay this is gonna be you just need to keep struggling to try to make your brain right. do this yeah, yeah. oh yeah, totally. and it may always be a struggle yeah yeah all right yeah we gotta we gotta shut this down i think because do, it's time what? to go except yeah uh, this is except uh, there's more to say. I feel like we didn't even get to anything. No, I know, I know. I know. Mean, we didn't get to some interest. Have them come back on for short questions, but we have to have like a timer to run on my dad. Yeah, we definitely a buzzer. Do. Yeah. <laughs> You're done. You have to the hook. talk faster. <laughs> yeah, the yeah. Chuck Berry hook. So. Yeah. <laughs> I do love that. Well, he, I, I told the Capstar kids that today something came up about your dad. And I said he's like the most interesting man in the world. <laughs> well, and really I love is, how but... he pops up. Like, oh, you know, Chuck Judd, and you're like, right. I don't know who that. Is, no, but obviously he's somebody that you know. That no, I do a lot of googling. Actually, ever since Google came out, I Google <laughs> while he's telling me stories because I'm like, "Who's this oh, guy? Wait, I could find this out now because oh, yeah. if you stop him to ask, then you don't get the rest of that story. Uh-huh. This is, you know, that's well, why it's harder to get it. It's very randomized. You can't have it on command, right? Yeah. Well, having taken his art history class, oh yeah, that class, you know, yes. which covers yep. pre, I mean, prehistoric to modern art and to go, man, he knows a lot about all of it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, now obviously he's got, you know, some segments that he's even more well-versed in. Right. Like, man, that guy knows a lot. A lot of stuff. It's very hard to just get it out in an organized way. But this is what's funny is when you start, Dean's grandpa died at 99 and like 11 months in one week. So he was like three weeks away from being a (laughs) hundred. And I remember having a conversation with him one time and being like, 
there are so many files in this file yeah. drawer. Like yeah. I remember asking him something and it was like you could see him trying to pick through the files. And I think it's very funny because you realize that people's internal filing system is like people's actual filing system. Oh, not yeah. everybody yeah. puts stuff in the same files yeah. and not everybody has the same direct access to like, I am pulling this one out yeah. and putting it back. No, my dad's like, is way yeah. more like bunting <clears throat> and it's like green, red, blue, yellow, purple, green, 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 purple, red, yeah. red. And if you're trying to get all the orange ones, good luck. Well, yes, it's, and you it's will a, get there. It's a little like, you know, Dave has got a ton of folders, uh -huh. you know, many, many, many folders that are full of things. I've got, so like my fire department folder is huge. Right, right. totally. So, you have one folder yeah. that has, a, because, that's, because you come across as similarly widely, yep, whatever, but yours clump more Oh, it's clearly. a, you know, right. the, yep. being a fireman is a wild, right? Now, yeah, yeah. in one sense, and I, I appreciate Dave saying that, you know, it, it, Christianity, <laughs> while it's plotting, while it's doing the same thing over and over again, it's, you're encountering different people, right, which means right. you've got to do it differently. Yep. You've got to adapt it differently to different people, but you're, you know, you're delivering the same message. Yep. You're just couching it in different terms. And the and fire like, department's like that. It totally is. Right? We're like, oh, it's another drunk guy, but is he going to be combative? Is right. he, does yeah. he have clothes yeah. on? Right. Yeah. You're do, you know, you're doing the same thing in a sense, but with different situations. Right. So those are wildly different. Yeah. Um, but, you know, every fire needs water on it so that it will uh, well, go out eventually. And this does yeah. make me realize that we're saying that the non-risk taker in the car is the one that used to run into buildings that were on fire to right. pull people out. So. Or, or confronting somebody you don't know if he's armed. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. This yeah. is the non-risk taker. He, yeah. <laughs> he just takes risks. <laughs> In an orderly area. Yeah. <laughs> and I wouldn't tell right anybody here. to move and take the job unless you had some cash to go. Yeah, sure. You yeah, don't yeah, show yeah. up dead broke. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Yep. Hey, you owe me a living. It doesn't <laughs> work <sure>. that way. <laughs> right. Well, you guys are interesting. Yeah, for real. Yeah, we should keep talking to these guys. Yeah. But not today. Dad, we said next time we're going to have a speed round and you're gonna, we're going to have a buzzer on you. Yeah, time okay. limit. No problem. Yeah. Ticking clock. <laughs> <laughs> Time's up. Yeah. Okay, All bye. right. Bye. bye.